As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show and our latest edition of Listener Questions. On today's show, we're tackling questions ranging from the best technological breakthroughs in soccer, the USMNT stars who could fix Premier League teams, and the domestic teams with the biggest chance of winning the World Cup. Were that such a thing? My name's Ryan Bailey, and it's another dynamic duo show today, not an awesome foursome, so joining me to put flesh on the bones of the things you ponder, our tactical wonder who isn't an absconder. Hello, Joe Larry. Oh, I got the Dr. Seuss rhyming intro. Ryan Bailey, I'm quite well. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I'm I'm really pleased I got absconder into a rhyme, frankly. I think that's new for me. So, so Ryan, I totally know what absconder means, but like for maybe someone out there who maybe doesn't know what it means, like mm-hmm. how would you define that word? I would say person. if I were due to regularly record a podcast and right. I went on vacation, I would be absconding from that oh, podcast. Oh, yeah. I see. Yeah, yeah, of course. Again, I knew that, obviously, but that was for, for uh, <laughs> listener Bill out there who didn't I know. know. Yeah. This is an educational podcast. It's fine, Of course. Fine. Of course. Um, okay, good. And obviously, Taylor Rockwell is still um, sunning himself in the greatest state ever invented in the history of the world, um, which is not Arizona. I'm sorry. Yeah, he's still not. He's still not in Arizona. So I don't know why you keep on that. But whatever. Your second best, buddy. Silver medal is still good. It's out of 50. It's still good. (sighs) You're right. Yeah, that's not bad. (laughs) Uh, Graham's also uh, in the, the great United States getting his annual sun exposure quota. In Florida. I think he might (laughs) explode if he stays a day or two longer than he should, so he's going to have to be careful there. Yeah, you want to watch out. I thought you were going to rank Florida, like you ranked North Carolina and Arizona, and I was eager for that personally, but it it might be best that you'd skip that part. Yeah, yeah, let's let's put an edit point in right here, Joe, and we'll move on swiftly. I'll tell you what, Joseph, um, I'm in Rome, Italy, uh, because that's where all my stuff is and my family, Um, and uh, last night, Roma won the Europa Conference League, and never have I seen a city sort of celebrate in unison like I did. I went and watched it in a local bar, and, like, obviously it was crazy in the bar. Like, at at full time, the barman got out bottles of Prosecco and champagne and just gave it to everybody. Like, they they were having a good time. And then I I had, like, a 30-minute drive home and just horn-honking all the way home. 
flags out of cars, people in the streets, like even like pretty empty streets, people just dancing in the streets. Roma, they, they love it here, Joe. They love it. Have you ever seen anything like that in Arizona? Uh, no, I, I really have not. Ryan, from everything you've told us about Rome and your experience in Italy, all of the things you just mentioned kind of sound normal and, and chaotic to the point that that's sort of your everyday life experience. I don't know if, if the traffic is usually quite that bad, but still to, see a, to, to be there and see a city gather around a team like that, it is a really cool experience. I think it was a good win for Roma yesterday. The, the stat that I saw, it's not really a stat, it's more like an anecdote, but the thing I saw flying around about this game was that it made Jose Mourinho the first manager to win the Champions League, the Europa League, and the Europa Conference League. Ryan, is this me being a killjoy, or is that not that impressive, given that this is the first year the Europa Conference League has ever existed, and the fact that it is the worst European continental trophy you can win? Nothing, trying to take nothing away from Roma as a whole. It is still an achievement to win any tournament. But I just thought that that Jose Mourinho attempted, the attempt to glorify Jose Mourinho through that statistic just felt weird to me. Am I, am I bad for saying that? You're not because I was going to say the exact same thing. Okay, cool. Um, I, I get the sentiment that he's done very well. And like, I saw the thing about how he's in the time he's left Man United and Spurs, he's won another European trophy and they still haven't won a darn thing uh, in his wake, which is another fun stat. But, but we'd, yeah. we'd be mocking Manchester United if they won the Europa Conference League. And, and justifiably so. But yeah, Jose, I don't know that we should be painting Jose Mourinho in a much better light just because of that trophy. But, I, I mean, they certainly adore him here, Joe. And I, I was thinking that same thing. Uh, yeah, you, you, you've, you've put a stat in there as a competition that he's only the only person who possibly could have won it at this point. <laughs> right. So congratulations to the statisticians there. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, they certainly enjoy it here. I'll tell you what's odd, though, Joe. The winner of the Europa Conference League gets a spot in the Europa League. And here's me thinking, why not give him Champions League qualifier spot? You know, mm. that would be a better surprise, wouldn't it? Hmm? Maybe? I I think it would be. It's just a question of whether or not they should skip right above. At first, I thought you were going to say just a Champions League group stage spot, but I'm actually kind of into the idea of them having to go through the qualification section. Now, this is my ignorance. When you go through Champions League qualification, if you reach a certain point in that process that usually happens in either late July for for smaller uh, teams and smaller nations or the beginning of August, I think, mm-hmm. yep. if you don't make it all the way through, is there a point where you still drop to the Europa League or, or are you just done in European competitions for the year? Because if you do drop, then yeah, I think it'd be fun to give them a chance to qualify for the Champions League, but still a guaranteed spot in the Europa League. But I'm not sure I'd want to take the risk of being in neither. That's true. Uh, I'll have to research that, Joe, because my mind is going blank right now. But uh, I think you might be done so at that point. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Um, either way, um, congrats to Roma. Congrats to local celebrity Jose Mourinho. Uh, also, Joe, in fun times in Rome, it was quite hard to get home from the bar last night because half the city is shut down because they are filming a movie franchise in its 10th um, iteration. Could you guess what it is? <laughs> Only because we talked about it beforehand. I, I, I might have gotten it either way, Ryan, but Fast and Furious 10, I was going to guess that there were a lot more than just nine and now 10 Fast and Furious movies. It feels like there's been a thousand, and I have seen parts of some of them. So, Graham and Taylor, if you're ever listening to this episode, and Ryan, you now, <laughs> be proud of me. I'm very always proud of you, Joe, and particularly more so now. But um, I've never actually seen a Fast and Furious movie either. So um, I feel like you're not really missing a whole lot, but no. I don't know. But all I could think of was if, if you've got a movie about cars and it's called Fast and Furious, then 
the streets of Rome are the most appropriate streets it could ever be filmed on, I think, because they are very fast and etc. and so on. All right, shall we go and do some listener questions, Joe? Let's get started with one from uh, the alliterative Detroit Dan. Hello, Dan who says, based on Graham's comments that club teams are better than international teams due to the amount of additional training, what is the smallest club that you would pick to win the World Cup were that sort of thing possible? For example, would you pick a Villarreal, an RB Salzburg, or a Rangers over France, Brazil, and England? Huh. Uh, assume that players could simultaneously compete for both their club and their international teams. So we're cloning players in this scenario, Joe, and we're also having domestic teams. Uh, the, the proposition being how far could a typical or what's the lowest level of domestic team that could get to a World Cup? And I'll, I'll preface this, Joe, by saying that the World Cup is a very, very different beast to domestic soccer. I think if you're a player, there might be a mentality that it's almost a side project because it's not your paid job. It's only a couple of weeks each each summer, every four years, plus qualifiers, of course. But, you know, where your training and your playing time and your focus is, is your day job. It's your club that pays you to be there. So I kind of see it as maybe I'm being really dismissive of international soccer, but it's like you're being, you know, you're more productive in your main job than you are when you're selling, um, you know, things you've knitted on Etsy. It's your side hustle. I th- I think there is some of that. It, I think it totally depends on the context, right? I think it depends on the country and the situation. I, I just think right now with the U.S. men's national team or even Italy, maybe in 2026 after they've missed this this coming World Cup and the one in 2018, the U.S., of course, missing 2018, you've got to think there are players on those squads that are itching to play in a World Cup. You've got to think, I think maybe even especially with some some American players, There's players that have been inspired by World Cup teams. Matt Turner cites the 2010 World Cup with the U.S. at that tournament in South Africa as being the World Cup that got him interested in soccer. So I think there are specific situations where players may put more value in the World Cup than they might put in some other things. Now, I don't know, and I don't think that's true for everyone. Ryan, I think you make a very good point. Players do do need to and should be concerned about their livelihoods. And you do make money from playing with your national team. You do make money for winning tournaments like the World Cup, but it's not going to be as consistent, of course, or as stable income as your club team. So I do think there is a mentality difference here. If we kind of set those things aside and just look at this from a sporting perspective, I, I totally agree with Graham's ideas about club teams having a massive advantage over national teams. Yeah. And I, I really do think you could go pretty far down the club ladder and, and pick a team from pretty deep down that could go in and win the World Cup. And the important word to say there is could, to emphasize there is could, because World Cups are crapshoots. Any sort of knockout tournament, I think, is more often than not a crapshoot. And a good team's probably going to win, but a lot of other good teams are going to lose. I said that same thing about Manchester City losing in the round, uh, in, in the semifinals of this year's Champions League. So it is a bit of a crapshoot, but I certainly think Dan mentions, or, or D- Detroit Dan mentions, Villarreal, Salzburg, and, and Rangers. I, I certainly think Villarreal and Salzburg could win the World Cup. You look at what RB Salzburg in particular, and, and Villarreal in particular, really, did against Bayern Munich in this year's Champions League. Bayern Munich could win the World Cup, hands down. They could do it fairly easily. And Salzburg and, and Villarreal both gave them a run for their money. And, and Rangers, I haven't watched as much of Rangers, but given how good they've been and given how far they made it in the Europa League this year and how dangerous they've been at times in the Scottish Premiership, I think they have a really good shot as well. I think you can make it down, Ryan, pretty yeah. much to the bottom or near the bottom of every top five major European league. 
I think Whoa. you could make it in. I think you could make it in the top teams in Liga MX, in the the Giants in South America, and maybe even a little lower than that. I don't know if there's an MLS team that could quite compete with some of those talent levels yet. But I really put stock in the amount of time and training and the tactical ability that these teams have, these club teams have to prepare. Ryan, just think about think about the last Euros. Austria nearly took out Italy. And, and there's not, that was in the round of 16 uh, at Euro 2020. Austria is not a bad team, but they weren't a, a good team at the Euros. And they almost beat the team that would go on to become the European champions. And I know they would go on Italy to lose to North Macedonia in qualifying. But man, there is so much talent on that Italy team. And they were still beaten by Austria. And I don't think the talent gap between a team like Austria and a, a mid-table Bundesliga team is great enough to make up for the gap that's between a mid-table Bundesliga team and a team like Austria in terms of the time they have to prepare and drill and come together as a team. I think club teams just have a massive advantage in this whole thing. Wow, Joe, you, you, I, I was going to set the stool. I thought I was going to be bold in this answer by saying any top four team from a top five league could win the World Cup easily. But you've, you've extended that slightly further and listening to your argument, I think I pretty much agree with you because you just have to look at the stat, the kind of soccer you see in a summer tournament. Yeah, exactly. And you look at, you know, the, the, not, it's not just the training time, as Graham said. It's not just the fact that, you know, that day in, day out, they're with each other, these players. But it's a more, you know, domestic soccer is more physical. There's more cohesion. There's more intuition between the players just by virtue of the fact they spend more time with one another. And the, the preparation for 60 games a season is a bit different from seven games for a World Cup, if you go all the way. So, uh, yeah, I think I'm inclined to agree with you there. And I, I was thinking, that, you know, like just pulling a name out of, of, of like Roma, um, for example, they got, what, three national team, Italian national team players already on, on their squad. They got a really a decent squad on paper. And someone like Jose Mourinho as their coach, you know, he, I think he'd be a really good tournament international coach. The way you know, score early and and bunker down, as as was uh, kind of seen in the Europa Conference final, and that's Mourinho style. That that kind of thing would work really well. One question I'll pose to you though, Joe. I said any top four, top five, top five league team. I have to be careful how I say that could easily walk to a World Cup final. You know, if the conditions are right, because obviously it's knockout soccer and it's not super predictable. What about Man City with Pep? Because would he <laughs> would he get to the semifinals, overthink it, put Gabriel Jesus at right back, and things go wrong? I mean, there is always a chance of that happening. I'd, I'd be interested to watch Gabriel Jesus at right back. I think he could actually be a pretty good right back if you give him enough time. I, uh, I think City would walk to a World Cup final, like you said there, Ryan. I, I do think the talent advantage they have already over... I mean, they would be equal, if not above, every national team in the world on talent. That's already putting them on level playing field. And then you have all of the training time. And I think one of the best coaches to ever be involved in soccer. You had those two things. And I think you're looking at a team that is going to win trophy after trophy on the international stage. If you give them enough tries. Because there will always be one or two go rounds where something goes wrong. right? And, and you don't have the situation that is perfect for them or whatever that, whatever that looks like. That's just how these knockout competitions go. But, man, I think City would be so dangerous. I think you can extend that a long ways down the Premier League table through a lot of other leagues in the world just, again, because of the time they have to play together. The quality, as much as I love international soccer, and, Ryan, I I think it's safe to say I like it a whole lot more than you do, as much as I enjoy watching national teams play, it is just not as good as club teams. I think you could turn on a game between two teams below 15th in the Premier League table, and the quality of that soccer is probably going to be better 
than watching a team like France, like like than watching France Switzerland in the Europa League, even though that game was bonkers and really entertaining. From a quality perspective and, and the types of plays that are being made, I know Pogba dropped a masterclass in that one, so maybe that's not the best example, but you get what I'm saying. I think that the quality of games in league play is just better than it will be in, a, in an international competition. All right, Joe, I'm going to surprise flip a question on you from this one. We've covered domestic teams, how far they go in the World Cup. Let's flip it. Mm. Where would Brazil finish in the Premier League? And let's say where would Austria finish in the Premier League? And how, how big a difference would there be between those two? I think Brazil could finish... I, I think they would certainly finish top half. I would probably even say they could finish in the Champions League spots. So that's putting a lot of faith in Brazil. But the advantage they have here is you're sort of changing their environment and you're giving them, at least if maybe I'm maybe I'm misinterpreting your question, you're giving them the chance to play game after game and to get better, to, to play 38 Premier League games, right? And to drill themselves as the season goes along. That's a huge advantage. And then I think by the end of the season, maybe even by the second half of the season, that team is probably humming because they've had three, four, five months to play together consecutively in a way that they just don't have right now. So I think a team like Brazil would do quite well. I even think a team like Austria would do very well. I think they could make it maybe even into European spots if we're putting them in the Bundesliga or if we're we're keeping them in the Premier League. I think they could do something similar, but maybe not obviously quite as high as Brazil. I think national teams, if you give them time, some of the best clubs, some of the best national teams in the world, Austria is probably on the fringes of that. If you give them time, they could do quite well in league play, but the challenge is they just don't have time the way soccer is constructed. Yeah, completely fair. And it's interesting to think that it's all the same players at the end of the day. Right. But those national teams in the league scenario would have a big disadvantage because they can only pull their player pool from a certain amount of players, whereas (laughs) Real Madrid can get players from any country in the world. So, yeah, interesting thought experiment there. Detroit, Dan, thank you so much for that one. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about technology and the improvements in soccer. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back and welcome to this question from Taylor J. What technology has most improved soccer playing and watching? What has made it worse, um, says Taylor. Um, interesting question here. I'm going to start off, Joe, on the playing and technical side of things. And the thing I think has ch- that has changed certainly domestic soccer the most is improvements in grass. Yep. And that sounds boring, but it's groundskeeping is what it's all about. And particularly like hybrid playing surfaces, uh, surfaces like half synthetic, half grass surfaces, which you kind of get all over the top teams in Europe now. I think maybe 
Arsenal were the first team to do a half synthetic field, if memory serves me correct. But um, the, there's an article on The Guardian explaining how the UK is the Silicon Valley of turf. It's where like groundskeepers go to learn their trade, basically. <laughs> and I'll, I'll say, like watching soccer when I was growing up in the 90s, you get to December, January, and every Premier League field, even the, the very richest clubs, it looked like, you know, it looked like a ploughed field. It was muddy in the in the penalty area. You could see it had been cut up everywhere. And now even League One clubs, even third tier clubs in England that still have the same weather conditions, it's still frozen during February. It's still really wet all the time. But the, they look like bowling greens. They look pristine the whole year round. And that, I think, has massively improved the standard for, 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 for the highest caliber of players. You know, they say a bad field is a great leveler between, you know, a, a really great team and a bad team. And now we've got this really consistent level of grass, basically. Um, I found some interesting stats about Wembley Stadium. The lawnmower that goes over it, to get one sort of clear cut over it, it covers 10 miles. I don't know how that works. Presumably they're going over and over it to get like one cut. Uh, and one of their lawnmowers costs about $15,000, uh, which is a lot more than the lawnmower that I use. Um, I'd also say in, on top of like using half synthetic and half grass fields, which basically means like there'll be a synthetic blade every like uh, like half an inch or something uh, to basically make the field hold up better. Um, um, you know, drainage as well. Drainage is a massive part of it as well because in climates where it rains all the time and fields don't really get waterlogged anymore. And under soil heating is another one. These things have become less expensive. Basically, I'm saying that soccer has become more all-weather and the playing fields have, been, um, have vastly improved across the board. So maybe that's a slightly boring example of what technologies improve soccer, Joe, but that's where I've set the stool out. I think, Ryan, I genuinely think that that is the answer to this question. It's one wow. of the two that I have in, in the first sort of tier of answers as the two that I think have been most revolutionary. And it is probably the singular one that has changed soccer the most for the better and improved both playing and watching. I think we've a lot of us have played soccer on some really bad fields. In my limited soccer playing experience, almost all of it were on really bad either public parks or you know rec fields or whatever that looks like. It's, it's not great. And so improving the quality of the playing services, we've come a long way, Ryan. You mentioned lawnmowers. It's, it's been a large journey from the invention of the, the first mechanical lawnmower, the first patent for the mechanical lawnmower in 1830, all the way to paying 15 grand for a lawnmower that's going to be able to go 10 miles to cover Wembley. That's huge, though. That improvement is massive. And I think it is the thing that has changed soccer and, and the experience of watching and playing soccer for the better. The other one that I had right up there in that tier was a better ball as well. We just talked about this right on Soccer 101. This idea that we moved from a pig's bladder to rubber in the 1850s, and then in the 60s we got some sort of standardization. That I should say the 1860s, to be very, very clear. Then in the 20th century, we're getting synthetic coverings and eventually fully synthetic material. And just uniformity, Ryan, having uniformity in fields, which I think is sort of what you're getting at there, uniformity in quality. And the same thing with the thing that's being kicked across or on the field makes just a massive difference. So that's that's kind of a, a broader interpretation of technology, but I think it still gets at the question. The other thing, and, and Ryan, let me, I guess skipping ahead to the second half of this question, I struggled to think of technology that has hurt soccer. And maybe that, that tips my hand a little bit about not really having any massive issues with VAR or goal line technology. Yeah. I think that stuff is, is generally fine and it's not worth really getting been out of shape about. I think there's value in that. The other positive thing I had before I flip it to you for, for maybe a negative thing if you got it, is streaming platforms like ESPN Plus and Paramount Plus. In terms of growing the game and watching soccer, 
I, I don't think the interfaces are great, especially Paramount Plus. I think it is a struggle bus to get through that on on at least a, a desktop computer. But man, ESPN Plus and Paramount Plus and, and really a lot of those streaming services, I think have done a lot of good for soccer in the U.S. I think they, the, the amount that they are able to show and spread is remarkable. Um, so I, I think those two things are the other technologically related items that I had on my list as far as things that have grown soccer and have improved the playing and watching experience. Did you just use the phrase struggle bus? Yes. Yes, I did. You I'm can steal it anytime you like. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm taking that. Thank you very much. I like that. <laughs> struggle bus. Fantastic. Um, yeah, that was the, the challenging part of the question for, of Taylor's question for me as well, Joe, what's made it worse because it's very subjective what's made it worse. VAR you get many fans who say that has made it worse. It has slowed down the game. It has its disadvantage. But overall, sure. it has advantages because it's all about making the game fairer at the end of the day. And I think you could probably run the numbers to suggest it probably has done that. So I'm on the fence about that one. I don't know how I feel about the streaming platform question because I love the fact that I can watch every game streaming if I want to in a, in a particular league. I love that ESPN Plus has so many leagues that aren't on terrestrial or cable channels or whatever you want to call it so i think that's a really great technological move what i'd say there's a flip side of that though in uh, in in terms of broadcasting in the the fan experience might be altered it means that um fans who are used to going on a saturday or a sunday for their weekend games now have to go and have odd go to games at odd times on weeknights or you know early champions league games which is difficult to get to after work for people in europe for example so everything kind of has its downside from a technological point of view but um, what i would say is a, a real positive technological advance is widescreen tvs and hd tv and 4k (laughs) tv um my my father-in-law has a, in the UK has a Sky Sports subscription with like the UHD 4K package and he's got like a super good TV. It's like watching another game, Joe. I, I don't know if you've seen it on like a really, really good TV, like with, with broadcast in 4K. It looks incredible. So I, I love that. And you just see detail that you don't necessarily see. And c- coming back, I was thinking t- today as we record, Joe, is the anniversary of Man United's famous Champions League win over Bayern Munich um, when they came back at the Camp Nou to win 2-1. Today's the anniversary. And I remember watching that on a little portable TV with like a 12-inch screen or something. And I think that viewing experience must be so, so different to me sitting here with my 60-inch flat screen, which, you know, probably didn't cost that much more than the tiny portable TV that I watched that game on back in the day. Um, So I, I think advances in TV we take for granted, perhaps. And just... The widescreen as well, 16 by 9 as opposed to 4 by 3. I'm, I think you might be too young to have watched soccer on 4 by 3 possibly, Joe, but having a wider view I think really makes the experience a lot better as well. And going along with the technical side of thing from the fan perspective, Joe, I'd also add like apps like FopMob and things like that to track games. Um, there was this, there's, a, there's a cliche um, on the last day of the, of the Premier League that everyone has like a transistor radio by their yeah. ear. And like nobody has one anymore. So the, the commentators are all saying, oh, everyone's listening to their transistor radios trying to hear the score from Liverpool. And no, they're not. They've got an app. They're, they're, they're looking at their phone. And that's, I think it's wonderful that you can be at a game and you know you can check everything on Twitter or on an app, something. So I, I love that kind of thing, even though it does. You could, there's a downside there because it does distract you from the game you're watching, blah, blah, blah. I get that. Um, one other thing I mentioned for this, Joe, I'll switch back to the playing side of things and technologically um, uh, beneficial things. I'll say GPS vests, which 
basically every team uses, even down to youth level these days, even like MLS youth teams will have GPS vests in training and in games. You know those little sort of bras that you can see underneath um, players' shirts and they have a little GPS chip in them. It allows them to get so much data and analytics on a particular player. So I was speaking to like they, um, Charlotte FC, for example, they have an analytics guy who just, you know, at the end of every training session, he'll download all of their chips. He'll look at what every player has done, who, who uh, X player did this, Y player uh, ran three kilometers less than this player, and so on and so forth. That's so helpful. And it's really helpful in the game situation as well. And it's the rise of that kind of thing, the rise of data and analytics. Yep. Is coupled, Joe, with the rise in the quality of the game. I don't think we get Liverpool, Man City as they are now without analytics. I totally agree, Ryan. That was the last thing on my list. And I'm glad you led us there. There's a couple different components to this, right? I, I've seen and, and witnessed that GPS process firsthand, right? The teams all across the world are doing that right now. They're getting the pods out after training and they're looking at a bunch of physical data to learn this player is still not 100%, this player is not trying hard enough in training, or they're not moving enough to better equip them for playing and succeeding in games, this player is doing too much, that kind of thing. You can learn all of that, and, and the extra piece of this is now we're just starting to see some tracking data as, as sort of a result of not necessarily those pods, but as a result of well-placed cameras in stadiums that can snap a, a ton of pictures a second and a ton of video to learn how players are moving, and that's just looking right past event data as well, which tells us a whole bunch about soccer. That's what a lot of teams in the world are still having to use as they try to recruit. And if they use it well, I think there's a lot of value to be found in the player recruitment space by using data. So data and analytics, Ryan, are, are totally contenders here for me as some of the better technological things that have helped change soccer. Some folks out there aren't going to like that. And, and I think from my view, there's far too many key decision makers and people in the player recruitment space who don't like data and they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot as a result of not using it. But man, I think that is a great shout as far as one other thing that's helped uh, help soccer really. Yeah. One thing I think's made it worse, Joe, XG. I don't fully understand it. <laughs> Just as we're propping up data and analytics. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect. <laughs> I think it's because I think it's built on suppositions and I don't a hundred percent understand the real world application of it, but um that's probably a me problem rather than an everybody else problem. <laughs> this can be a this can be a soccer water one at some point. We'll come yeah, back to that. That's a great idea, Joseph. Great idea. And Taylor, thank you very much for that question. We shall move on to Andrew Johnson, who says Caleb Porter said he is seeking a fifteen to twenty goal a season striker in July for the Columbus Crew. Um, aren't we I'll all? Interrupt there. Aren't oh, we literally, all? aren't we all? Doesn't every <laughs> team in the world want that? But yeah, we'll go on. Um, which three leagues, asked Andrew, would be a reasonable source for strikers who could transition immediately from scoring twenty? to scoring 20 in MLS. Oh boy, how do we find this this unicorn player? Um, I'll, I'll let you go first here, Joe. <laughs> um, okay, so so first of all, I want to pause and say, Andrew, I think I think if this is who I think it is, uh, thanks for listening to MLS Assist all those years and asking us questions because I'm pretty sure that that Andrew Johnson was a Columbus Crew fan as well. So thanks, Andrew, for, for listening through the years to both TSS and MLS Assist. As far as answering this question, I do not think there is an answer to this question, but I'm still going to answer it in a different way. There is no league in the world where you can try to snag up a player and they're going to automatically translate to 20 goals. And, and that could be snapping them from the Premier League to MLS. It could be snapping them from La Liga to the Premier League. It just it, it doesn't work like that, right? And I, maybe that's not exactly the intent of this question to give an answer that's that cut and dry. But I think about the, the New York Red Bulls who just signed Ashley Fletcher earlier on this year from the Premier League. 
he's not going to score 20 goals in MLS. And he's coming from maybe the best league in the world, right? So there is not the this one-size-fits-all, catch-all type of answer to this question. But I do think MLS teams have had some successes in particular areas that's worth bringing up here. So the first one that comes to mind is Liga MX on the goal-scoring front. Now, this is not a 100% hit rate by any stretch of the imagination, but you look at some specific examples. Raul Ruiz Diaz in 2018 coming to the Sounders from Morelia in Liga MX. He's clearly been a very good signing for them. Gustavo Bo, not nearly on Ruiz Diaz's level, but coming from Tijuana to the Revs in 2019, I would say he has generally been a, been a success in Major League Soccer. Major League Soccer. Alan Polito as well, coming from Chivas to Sporting Kansas City in 2019. All three of those players, and there have been a couple of others as well, goal scorers, strikers. There have been some good number 10s coming out of Liga MX, but those players in particular as number 9s. They've all done well for their teams, and if the crew can find someone like, especially Rui Diaz or, or Polito, I think, they will be a much better team for the second half of the season if they can find someone like that after the secondary transfer window opens in July. So that's, Liga Mekis, I think, is kind of my best answer at this. You're going to have to pay a pretty hefty chunk to get a player from Liga Mekis, but you can find maybe an in-their-prime goal scorer who can do that job. A couple other thoughts and maybe examples. I've just been looking at other players in MLS who have scored a lot of goals recently, Ryan Bailey. Adam Buxa is one of them, and he looks to be on his way out of Major League Soccer in the near future because he's been so good in MLS, frankly. So playing for the Revs, he came over from Poland. He is a Polish national team player, and he was playing in Poland. Uh, there have been a couple other players recently that have come in from either Eastern Europe or leagues in Europe that maybe aren't as well-known soccer-wise. Uh, so Orlando signed Erkan Kara this offseason, and Philly signed Mikel Ura as a, as a designated player. Neither one of those guys is really lighting MLS on fire, but I do think that shows us. Uh, Ura came from Denmark, I believe, and Kara came from Austria. You add in those those countries along with Poland, those aren't leagues necessarily known for exporting talent, but I think it's important that MLS go and look towards some of those leagues now that they've tapped out South America. They haven't really tapped out South America, but they are having to pay a, a premium because they've been shopping in that market so much. And teams in South America know that MLS teams have money to spend. At least certain MLS teams are willing to spend that money. And that's my last answer, is I do think you can find value not necessarily in one South American league over the other right now. You're probably looking at some of the smaller countries uh, that are maybe less known for soccer. But Tati Castellanos comes from Uruguay and has been the best nine in Major League Soccer and is going to get NYCFC $15 plus million in the summer, most likely. And then Leo Campana, starting for into Miami, getting Gonzalo Higuain a, a nice spot on the bench. He came from a league in, league in Ecuador. And Christian Arango coming from Colombia for LAFC. I think there's value there if you find the right player. But that's the theme here, finding the right player. That could be from Liga Mekis. It could be from South America. It could be from Europe. I think MLS teams are starting to look in Africa a little bit more. That's something that Paul and Sam talked about in a recent episode of Allocation Disorder, and I think they're absolutely right on that. I think you want to be looking for value, and at this point, value might have to come from less heralded soccer areas. I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head of what I was going to get to there, Joe, with, with the point on value there, because I try to be empirical and kind of find some trends of where high goal-scoring players came from in MLS traditionally. I looked at, let's say, last season, you mentioned a few of these players like um, uh, Raul Rodriguez, uh, Busca, uh, Chicharito, Olakamara, and 
uh, Valentin uh, Castellanos were the top five scorers. And they're they're from so many different places. From, like there's not really a theme place. there at all. Yeah. No one's from the same place or even you know continent essentially there. So uh, it's really difficult to draw any conclusions there. And anecdotally, I'm going to refer back to Charlotte FC again just because it's a world I know. I worked sure. there for a couple of years. And I was quite close to the technical team, and their perception was second tier European leagues are a great place to find and to loan players to. So that's why, for example, Charlotte, before they started, had players in the Spanish second tier, the English second tier, and so on. They felt like in terms of the physicality and in terms of the standard, that was the sort of level um, those kind of players should be playing at to sort of get them ready for, you know, having a bit less of the ball and having a, a more physical approach. So um, that that's my anecdotal evidence there. But it does ultimately come down to value. And you could you know look at Charlotte once again, who pulled players from all over the world who seem to be having an incredible amount of international players on their roster. And it's not about getting them from a certain area. It's about getting them from a certain talent-to-value ratio. Yeah, And it's yeah, about it... uncovering those gems. So it's not... I mean, it's a crapshoot to find a 15- to 20-goal season striker because every team's trying to do that, as we say. But it's about, yeah, not limiting your scouting to one particular area. And I think even Charlotte, to go back to that example, Ryan they fall into the category of, of picking a nine from a slightly less heralded league. They get Karol Svidersky from Greece, right, from the, from the first division in Greece. That's not a place where a lot of MLS teams have looked for talent before. And I think Svidersky is a, a decent player, more likely actually that they might have found him from the Polish national team. I don't know how that scouting process went. But I don't know if he's going to hit an MLS or not. I think he has some talent. I, don't, I think it's too early to, to truly tell with Svidersky. But it's another example. It, it just... This question serves as a reminder for me, and this actually came in right as I was reading uh, Sam Stagegill's recent piece for The Athletic about MLS teams missing on the, the signings they're spending a ton of money on, right? MLS teams, the hit rate on some of those big money signings is not good enough. Teams are wasting money because they're either not very good at scouting or, or they're getting unlucky, but I tend to think it's more the first than the second. That's something that MLS needs to improve. It is great that the league is spending money and, and more teams are willing to spend that's a really good step for the league. But if teams like Columbus want to get an advantage, spend smart, spend spend money. Yes, go pay Lucas Zellerian sized fees for a number nine and for maybe a winger if you can fear up the DP spot at some point down the line. But do it right. Sign the right guy. Because if you're if you're gonna throw out seven million dollars on a pretty mediocre number nine, don't don't really just don't do that. Instead, go look for value within the league. Go do what the San Jose Earthquakes did and sign Jeremy Abobasi and trade for him and trade a lot of allocation money. Yes, but go get yourself a 15 goal a year striker from within MLS and allocate some of that other cash to other things if you have the right if you have the right resources available to you from within Major League Soccer. So spend smart, and I don't know that there's a way to spend smart and to spend wisely while you're just looking at one or two or three leagues necessarily. There we go. Thank you very much, Andrew, for the question. We move now to Kevin Tolley's query. Uh, he's given us sort of almost a reading comprehension question here, Joe, like like you're in school again. Uh, Kevin says, fill in the blank uh, in this question. <laughs> USMNT player X would totally fix at least one glaring problem on this Premier League team. Why? We'll call them. So which uh, USMNT player would fix a big glaring problem at any particular or any given Premier League team um i i kind of go back to the previous question from andrew here in that it's difficult because most teams would need a striker is is probably the problem for most premier league teams or indeed any team and i don't know if the usmnt can serve that issue 
very well. Yeah, yeah. There, there's some spots here, Ryan, where I don't think the U.S. can help certain teams. So number nine certainly being one of those things. Maybe you look at an area like left back, although I do, I do think Jedi Robinson could do a job for a mid to bottom of the Premier League table team, and I think he could be an interesting signing. If uh, obviously I know he's coming up to the Premier League anyway, so that'll be there. But if someone was looking to make a move, that wouldn't be the worst thing at some point in the future. I kind of started at the top and worked my way down a little bit for this question. And by started at the top, I mean I looked at the very best players that the U.S. has and thought about where they could fit. And that starts for me with Gio Reyna, who I think is, if he's healthy, and I'm going to assume everyone is for the sake of this question, if Gio Reyna is healthy, I think he is the most talented player in the U.S. pool right now, and I think he might be the most talented player the U.S. has ever had. I think he's that good. And more than that, I think he would help pretty much every Premier League team. Now, that doesn't mean he would start on every Premier League team. I don't think there's a chance that Gio Reyna is starting for Man City. I don't think he's starting for Liverpool. But, man, he could be a key sub for those two teams. He could be a starter maybe for Chelsea. He could be a starter for Manchester United. You kind of work your way down. Tottenham, Arsenal, I think you would get real minutes for pretty much every team in the league outside of maybe the top two who are legendary teams in the history of soccer. So Gio Reyna would help everybody. And I think just like with Gio, a lot of the U.S.'s top guys who don't currently play in the Premier League, so I'm not really thinking about Christian Pulisic for this question, but Sergino Dest could be a starter at right back for a bunch of teams in the Premier League. Weston McKinney, Tim Weah maybe wouldn't start for everybody, but you get to mid-table, I think you're you're looking at him doing some real damage. Tyler Adams, there's reports of him maybe being involved in a Premier League deal at some point later this summer. All of those players could do some damage. But as far as specifics, because that's what this question is really about, is filling in those two blanks, the X blank and the Y blank. My first way to do that, and I have two, and then I'll flip it back to you, Ryan, is Matt Turner. And I, I know Matt Turner's already doing this. He's already going to Arsenal, but he's not really going to Arsenal to solve any major problems. He's not expected to be an every-game starter. He's, he's probably going to, and maybe I'm wrong, and I hope I am, that he can fight for more minutes than this, but he's probably going to be Arsenal's Zach Steffen and start in the cup competitions and sit on the bench in the league games. That seems like the most likely outcome to me right now, although that could change. What if he went somewhere else other than Arsenal? Matt Turner, one of the best shot stoppers in American soccer history, and that is not an exaggeration. I think Matt Turner would help Leeds United out a ton, not just because of the American connection, but their goalkeeper, Messler, this season was the worst shot stopper in the Premier League, according to FB Ref, which gets their data from StatsBomb. He, he was giving up the most goals that other keepers would save on a regular basis. He was dreadful, really, this past season for Leeds. This solves both problems. It gets Matt Turner minutes, and he helps himself and maybe helps the U.S. World Cup team. And it also helps Jesse Marsh and Leeds get stable in the back in a way that they just really couldn't do all of this past season, whether it's under Bielsa or under Marsh. That's my first answer. I would love that to happen, some sort of loan. It's, I'm sure, not going to, but that would be good. The other one for me is Yunus Musa. I don't love this fit for Musa, but I do think it would work and it would help Wolves. That's the team I'm talking about here. I think he could be a really strong presence for them in the middle of their midfield block, right? So whatever shape that looks like, we've seen a lot of back three this year from Wolves. It could be in a back three. It could be in a more back four type of look. Having Yunus Musa in midfield and having him help absorb pressure, which is basically all he's ever done for Valencia because that's how all they've ever done while he's been there, having him absorb pressure defensively and then be an option to help bring the ball forward on the break to make some late-arriving runs into the box, all of those things, I think he can provide value defensively and in attacking transition, and some in possession certainly as well. I think Turner to Leeds and and Musa to Wolves are both ones that would really be beneficial to those particular Premier League teams. 
Yeah, um, you, you've pretty much taken the only answer I could come up with uh, for this question, Jay, which was to, uh, to Leeds because they had the worst um, goals scored against by any team that stayed up. Um, what about Zach Steffen going to Leeds? Would that help? Uh, maybe, maybe. I think Zach Steffen could be an upgrade over what they have currently. I don't know. I, I, I just don't know. Right? I don't think based off what we've seen with the national team, certainly, and that's been where Stefan's been getting the majority of his games basically since getting back to City from his loan in Dusseldorf. I, I don't think based off of that, he would help all that much. He was one of the worst shot stoppers in all of CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. Um, so I don't think that's a move that a team that is really looking into data and trying to make smart, informed decisions should be trying to make. But for Zach Stefan. I think that would be a great move. I think he I think he should be looking to go and play. And this kind of comes back to how players view the World Cup. But if he's excited about the World Cup and wants that to be his tournament where he is the guy, I think there could be value in him going to play at a team like Leeds and getting real minutes there. Yeah, interesting. All right, maybe that was a lateral move that I thought of there. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Kevin, for the question. That was a great one. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, a few more listener cues back shortly. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions, including this one from Alex Izbicki, who asks, which USMNT player on a relegated team most needs a move? Which one will be best off sticking around and playing second division soccer to get some more minutes? Uh, by my count, says Alex, the players in this category are Sargent, Bello, Green, Tessman, Busio, Delatore, and Miazga. Um, this is obviously a, a bit of a moving target here, depending on when people are listening, Joe. Um, I mean, I've seen some news about Busio, for example, having a relegation clause in his contract. Tom Bogut reporting on that pretty recently. Um, what are your thoughts, your initial thoughts on this one, Joe? So for me, there's a pretty clear answer to which player needs a move most. And that player for me is Luca De La Torre. That player I think is going to move, not because of anything that I know, but just because it seems logical after Heracles get relocated and it seems like that's where the wind is blowing with some of the reports surrounding Luca De La Torre right now. For me, he's the best player out of any of those players that Alex lists as being uh, recently relegated. He is the best player on that list by a decent margin, in my opinion, right now. It sounds like there is potential to make a move. And and more importantly, I think he's ready for that next step. I think he's ready for a better team. It was a bit of a slog to watch Heracles this past season, right? I mean, De La Torre is a strong player, and I think he was a bright spot for that team, but they weren't good. Their possession spacing wasn't good. They weren't dangerous, really, with the ball. And I think it'll be good for De La Torre to find that next step. I don't think he's moving to an Ajax or a PSV, maybe not even to a team like Feyenoord. They have depth and they have talent. But I think climbing up the Eredivisie ladder a little bit and climbing up the table 
could be really valuable for someone like De La Torre. Busio to pause and address him to to address him for just a second. I I don't know how I feel about him moving on from Venezia. I don't think Busio personally is really ready to impact a, a first division team in one of the big European leagues. I just don't think he's developed enough to that point. So I wouldn't mind seeing him play a year in Serie B. I don't think that would be the worst thing. It doesn't sound like that's going to happen. And for me, I kind of hope that he goes to Belgium or he goes to the Netherlands and plays in a league that is maybe slightly less competitive where he might have a chance to sort of get his bearings a bit more and become a more well-rounded player. So that's that's my view on Busio. I kind of hope he stays in Serie B, but that doesn't it's not going to happen from Tom's reporting. So find somewhere else that is more realistic than jumping up right back into a top five league. Everybody else, maybe outside of Matt Miazga, that Alex mentions, I think could stay. Or, or, or at least I don't think really needs to be pushing for a move. So Tanner Tessman, he's just not ready. He's a really talented kid, really, you know, a really strong athlete, decent technical ability, but he's just he's not ready yet. He's too raw, he's too young. I think he should stay with Venezia in the second division in Italy. Josh Sargent, I think, could use a season in the championship to season and maybe get a chance to actually do something in the attack, which Norwich couldn't really do at all in the Premier League this year. I think you should stay. George Bello, I think, needs seasoning as well in the in the second Bundesliga. Could be a good place to do that. He's just a little raw still, and I don't think he's defensively all that aware yet. He can be dangerous going forward at times, but he has not realized his potential. So for most of the players, outside of De La Torre, maybe Miazga and, and Busio, I guess, is in his own category right now. Julian Green, I, I don't have a really impassioned viewpoint on. But really, Tessman and Sargent and Bello in particular, I think, would be better off for staying Ryan in a second division because I think there's value in that, right? I think there's value in staying in a league where you can develop a little bit more. And, and yes, there'll be pressure because these are still big teams that these clubs are playing for, that these players are playing for, a lot of them. But I, I think there's value in staying down for a little bit to get your bearings. I think that's a, that's a healthy way of looking at it for sure. Um, and maybe the, yeah, the, the focus shouldn't be which players need a move, but which players need to stay, as you say. And I think Josh Arden's a perfect example of that to get some to get some minutes and to get um, so, so, some meaningful <laughs> balls actually at his feet, which he'll get at the championship. Um, maybe we could look conversely at this as well, Joe. Someone like Ricardo Pepe, who, whose Augsburg stayed up, would he have benefited from a relegation and maybe a bit of second tier action where he actually, you know, rather than making a few cameos now and then, maybe get some more meaningful time on the field as well. I think there's a real chance that that, that might be the case. I've been thinking more and more about this Pepe move. I wrote an article for Backhield, basically sort of putting my, my stake in the ground, my flag in the ground for some USMNT transfers that I don't think maybe should happen. So Christian Pulisic and Tyler Adams are the ones I focus most on in that piece. And it's, I think it is the most likely outcome that both of those players end up moving clubs. It sounds like Tyler Adams is ready to get out of, uh, to get out of Germany. It sounds like Pulisic and that whole Chelsea situation isn't the most stable thing. But I think there's real value in those players staying where they are this close to the World Cup with how injury-prone they've been and then using maybe a strong World Cup performance to leverage their way into a better contract with better terms at a new team either in the winter or next summer. Now, I don't think... Either one of those players is going to really go for that that line of thinking, but I do think it is a, a reasonable way to look at this situation. Now, with Ricardo Pepe, I think there would have been value with him just staying in Dallas. Now, for Jesus Ferreira's sake and how well he's playing, I think it's kind of a good thing that he's out of Dallas for the rest of that team. But, man, I, Augsburg is a tough spot in the Bundesliga, and maybe they spend a little bit more and maybe they're a little more competitive next year. I think we're maybe fooling ourselves right now with the way that roster is constructed and with how the second half of the season went. 
if we think that Pepe's going to be this really dynamic Bundesliga attacker next season. I think he will be better. I think he'll be better off next year in the Bundesliga than he was this season. He'll have a full offseason to kind of be in and around the team, to get acclimated with however that works of a full preseason, all of that good stuff. We will see a better Ricardo Pepe, but I don't know that we're really going to see a drastically better Augsburg team. So Ryan, to your point, it's your question maybe it would have been more valuable for him to go and get those reps in the second division. I want to be optimistic about Pepe because I think he's a really talented player, but I certainly wouldn't rule out the possibility that a relegation would have been the best thing for him. All right. Thank you very much for the question, Alex. Uh, Let's go to Cam Tate, who asks a very interesting question, Joseph Lowry. What is the single greatest upset in the history of soccer? Just a small one for us to tackle here um, (laughs) as we go through listener questions. Uh, I'm going to set the stall out at the one I think probably genuinely is the greatest upset, and I might have some English bias here, but I think it's Leicester winning the Premier League in 2015-16. That 5,000 to one shot. It just boggles my mind every time I think about it. Every time I think about how they went 38 games and they still won that thing against all the odds, against all the financial clout of all the opposition they had. And with a team that was, you know, scouted in the way that we talked about MLS teams and how they should be scouted from getting, you know, unearthing gems from second and third tiers. So I, I for me... That remains the greatest upset and probably maybe the greatest upset in all of sports, Joe. Hmm. Have there been? Ryan, I agree. First of all, I completely agree with that answer. I did not think about a team in league play going through and winning a title as an upset. I guess I was thinking this a little more narrowly, but that is totally the right answer, I think. That is, it was it was so impossible and so really improbable that the fact that it happened is mind-blowing. Ryan, have there been any real like either Netflix documentaries or Amazon document like have there been any real productions made about that team in that season because I want to watch all of them because now I'm remembering how great of a feat that was for Leicester does that exist yet or are we still waiting I don't know that's a great question I don't think so I think we're waiting it should exist it really should because yeah mind-blowing so much talent on that squad from as you mentioned Ryan not really the most well-known places. Riyad Mahrez and Golo Kante, Jamie Vardy, Harry Mag- I mean, so much ability in that squad. I think that's a great shout. The answer that I had to this question, Ryan, is a single game and a single result. And we're going back to 1950 to find it. It's the U.S. national team beating England at the World Cup in 1950. The USA winning 1-0 off of a Joe Gajan's goal in the first half. The U.S. was major underdogs in this game, playing with a bunch of amateurs. England had beaten Italy in Portugal by a combined scoreline of 14 to nil in the couple of weeks leading up to that game. The U.S., on the other hand, had lost their last seven international games by a combined scoreline of 45 to two. So, quite the difference in goal difference coming into this particular game. Gajan scored the goal in the first half, and that was basically all she wrote in this game. As it turns out, Ryan, and I I went to go and do some more research on this, neither team actually made it out of the group stage. The World Cup format at that time in the 50s was a little bit different than it is now. So neither team really necessarily directly benefited from that particular game. But still, the, the difference in quality and reputation of those two teams at that time, I think is maybe one of the bigger differences in those things that you can find in any soccer game. I don't know, Ryan, if you had that anywhere near your list, but I, I do think that's a really strong contender. Nah, it's not that one. <laughs> I, think, I need actually, Taylor here for this. I really do. Joe, I think even in that tournament itself, there was a bigger upset, the final. 
1950 final, Uruguay versus Brazil. This tournament was in Brazil. And Brazilians still talk about it as the greatest sporting shot they've ever had that they lost on home soil in Rio. Uh, Maracanazo, I think is what they call it. Like an absolute disaster to have lost that tournament. I'm not. I'm going to give my uh, my compatriots a pass having to have in 1950 sure. travelled across the ocean to South America for a tournament. Yeah, it's not. It's not for me, Joe. You guys, you guys did sure enough traveling, you know, early on in like the history of your nation and other fledgling nations to to go do stuff. I think you can make uh, it to Brazil to to play a soccer uh, game. Right? Awkward. Okay, conversation gets even more awkward. <laughs> Let's move on. Um, Coming more recently, Joe, what about um, Champions League season 2016-17, Barcelona-PSG round of 16, PSG 4-0 up in the first round, then losing 6-1? Yeah. that's Ryan, that's an interesting one because when you look at the quality of those two teams, you think, no, right, that's not an upset. You know, Barcelona beating PSG, or if it had gone the other way around, that wouldn't be a shock. It's two of the biggest and most expensive teams in the world. But then you factor in the context from that first leg, and it's a completely different ball game at that point, Ryan Bailey. I think that is a great answer. I remember that day and that game and, and basically not really paying all, all that much attention to the second leg because this was before I was I was covering soccer and, and far before I was ever on TSS, thinking, okay, this one's already done. I don't really need to pay attention to this game. And then re-engaging and checking back in on the scoreline and turning on the game and realizing that something historic was happening. Ryan, that is a great answer. I was thinking as well, some different cups and some different, uh, you know, either international tournaments or club tournaments. There's a few in more recent years, relatively recent years, that that came to mind. So first in the American soccer sphere, the U.S. beating Colombia at the 1994 World Cup, and that's remembered, I think, more for uh, the tragedy of Andres Escobar being killed after the game than it is for the game itself. But that was a major upset for the United States in the United States at a really pivotal point in American soccer history. I think there's value there. The Rochester Rhinos winning the U.S. Open Cup back in 1999, becoming you know a non-MLS team to actually win that tournament. That's an achievement. Cal FC beating the Timbers. The fifth division Cal FC in the U.S. Open Cup, I think is just a, a really impressive achievement. And then maybe more recently, North Macedonia pulling off upsets over Germany and Italy within the span of a year, basically. So Germany and World Cup qualifying in 2021, and then Italy in the latter stages of World Cup qualifying in 2022. That's extremely impressive. And then Bolivia beating Argentina 6-1 to back in a World Cup qualifier in 2010. Maradona called, uh, Maradona talking about that game said every goal was like a stab in my heart. And I'm sure it felt like that for Argentina fans watching Maradona coach that team for large stretches of time. But those are, are, a lot of them are more obscure and I don't think necessarily fit the criteria of the greatest upset of all time because we all know that's the USA and England back in 1950. But man, I, I do think those are some pretty notable upsets both in American soccer history and then outside of that as well. Yeah, so we're both agreed it's not the 1951, it's the Leicester one. Um, I'll, I'll add, um, I'll add <laughs> sure, another example yeah, sure. on, from England though. Before Leicester did what they did, uh, what was widely regarded as the biggest shock in English soccer was what my team, Wimbledon, did in 1988, beating Liverpool in the FA Cup final. Um, and the context there is Liverpool, obviously, in the 80s, were the best team in the world, you know, on a similar level to the, where they are now, but there was no Man City. Um, and this was this is a game that basically, I think it prevented them getting the treble, this, this, uh, this game. Um, and Wimbledon had only been promoted to the top tier two seasons earlier, 10 seasons earlier, were in the bottom tier. So it's, it's like Wimbledon obviously being a tiny team with only a few thousand fans. 
it's um, it's like the biggest David versus Goliath you could have ever had in this Wimbledon team winning to stay in the top flight through the Premier League through, through to the year 2000 as well. Very good story. Very good story. I'll tell it yeah, sometime. It is. Um, and the other one I was going to bring up is um, uh, England 10, USA 0 from Black Friday 2022. Uh, hmm, I don't... I don't think that's happened before. I definitely don't think that's going to happen, Ryan. I, I, I don't. I don't know. I think you're maybe pulling that one out of your butt. We'll have to find out, Ryan. We'll be back on Black Friday, and we'll we'll see just how wrong you are. Yeah, play it back. Play it back. Then I'll be laughing. <laughs> All right, on that, Joe, uh, I, I, I think we're nearly done with listening to questions. Just a little bonus question for you here from Daniel Martini, which is a wonderful surname. Well so done. good. So good. Um, following the questions about how many goals will TSS hosts score for Man City in a season, I think, was that last week we said that? If we were placed in Man City's team, how many goals would each of us get? And I think none of us had the hubris to suggest we get more than, like, one. Um, so Daniel says, uh, following off on that question, who would score more goals playing for Man City, Erling Haaland or the entire TSS host team? All four of us. <laughs> Same assumptions as before for the whole season, as in like no subs or anything. Like you, We all play for the whole season. But instead of one Erling Haaland, four of us. So it's like 15 versus 11 in all games. I don't think my 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 answer changes, Joe. Nope. I still think that the speed <laughs> and the power that those other teams will have will still outmatch all four of us. I do not think we would score many goals at all, Ryan. I think it would figure out. It would take us so long to figure out how to play, how to play with our three man advantage. That you know, maybe for the first three or four games of the season, we're not really bringing any value at all because we can't figure out how to move and how to interchange between the four of us all trying to play up top in a similar area. That's a challenge. And then even when we figure that out, are we seriously going to bring a ton of value either running in behind or dropping in to link up play? I don't know about you guys, Ryan. I know you're a runner. I'm not bringing really any value in either one of those situations. So I I don't think we're really moving the needle here, Ryan. I am totally with you. I think Erling Holland is the right move. Now, the only advantage we have over Erling Holland is that we would have come for far cheaper. So maybe there's a benefit there for Manchester City. Maybe they can spend the rest of the money they're spending on Erling Holland's salary and, and transfer fee on training us and just really getting us ready for games and getting us ready to beat Liverpool. But uh, barring some massive soccer miracles, I don't think we're really helping Man City all that much. I'm, I'm, now I'm thinking maybe if there's like a League Cup game in the first round against like a third tier team, could we do something there, Joe? Or what if we're, what if we're on penalty duties? One of us would that get a penalty, work. wouldn't we? That, yeah, okay, that's true. If we got penalties, I think we could rack up, I don't know, maybe 10 goals over a season. I don't know how many City drew this year. But if we just rotate through, I mean, I'm backing I'm backing Taylor to take some penalties and you and Graham probably over me. But I'm even pretty confident in my ability to score at least half of my penalties. Maybe, maybe, maybe less. Maybe that's being a bit ambitious. But if we got some penalties, Ryan, I think we could do some damage. Yeah, I think the original question, to be fair, was about goals from open play. But um, that's the caveat that we. What can... about what about set pieces? Could we do some damage on set pieces if we use the other three of us? So Ryan, who's the tallest of us all? Taylor's not very tall. I'm not that tall. I mean, we're about the same height. I think Taylor and I. Graham or you? Do do we know heights? What are we, where are we at? I think I'm a bit taller than Graham. Let's say. Okay, that. so Ryan, you're gonna be our set piece master, and we're gonna form a wall around the opposition, and we're gonna just screen for you basketball style, <laughs> and try to get you an open header at the back post, and you're gonna put it away. Okay, sound good? Oh, but they pump the balls up really hard in the hey, top division, Joe. For the it's team, Ryan. For the team. <laughs> Make it happen. All right, fine. We'll get one. 
without <laughs> without technique there. Very good. Thank you, Daniel, for that one. And thank you, everybody, for your questions. TotalSoccerShow.com slash questions. If you have one for us, you're very welcome to send one. Oh, 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 one extra bonus teaser question from uh, Kenneth Seiden, who asks, are you going to do a special episode of Soccer 101 for its 101st Ooh. episode? Uh, Soccer 101 listeners will may recall we're on episode 99 right now. Uh, Kenneth, the answer is yes. Stay tuned. Yeah. That's all we're we're getting right now. Keep your eyes and ears peeled, Kenneth. It's coming. Keep those ears peeled, says Joe. Very good. Joseph Lowry, (laughs) thank you very much for your time on this podcast. Thank you, Ryan. And listener, thank you so much for joining us on this Odyssey. We'll be back very soon with another one on the feed. In fact, uh, if you look out on Saturday, I believe we may, Joe, be talking about that little old Champions League final. Is that right? Oh, you know, we may be having a thing or two to say about Liverpool, Real Madrid. Ryan, I'm I'm legitimately very excited about that game. I think it could be fun, and this is this is the trap I always fall into before a tournament final. After telling myself all tournament long that it's not going to be a good game because tournament finals are never good. Well, this this one's going to be good. Darn it! I'm excited. I think it's going to be fun. That's uh, the eternal optimist, Joe Lowry. My name is Ryan Bailey. This has been Total Soccer Show. Thank you very much, listener. For now, bye.